Well, we're going to be looking at the, the short little book of First John for the next few weeks. I don't know how many weeks that will be yet, but for the next few weeks. So if you want to be studying and preparing yourselves as we go forward in the next few weeks, First John would be a good thing for you to read and meditate on. Um, the, the issues that John was dealing with are still so relevant today, it's almost scary. It shows you that the enemy is still trying to do the same old stuff that he was trying to do back when the church was birthed. Before I start, I want to ask a question. Have you ever had somebody come to you with information that you weren't sure you could trust or believe? You, 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 you heard what was being said, but you're wondering, hmm, probably wondering at least a couple of things, especially if what they're telling you could be very, very, very important in your own life. You're probably wondering about the messenger themselves. Is this messenger bringing me second, third, and fourth-hand information or, or possibly rumors? Or if it's not a rumor, how much has it changed in, the, in being passed from one person to another? Certainly can cause a lot of problems. Or just flat out the reliability of the messenger. I would guess most of us have experienced that feeling of wondering, is this really true or isn't it? Do I really need to receive this? And then if I do, do I need to really act on this? And not knowing for sure what to do. Because part of you knows if, if you respond and it's not something that needed response, you can cause more trouble than, than you know what to do with. But you know sometimes you just can't ignore things. And when we are looking at things that, that, that are like that going on in our head, it can bring such confusion. Anybody ever get confused about what to do and how to handle a situation? Boy, that's an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? You're just not certain. We need clarity, we need confidence, and we need security that what we're hearing is really the truth. Is it really true? And as we begin to look into 1 John this morning, you're going to see, I think, that John is bringing truth to a troubling situation in the early church. Truth that needed to be spoken, needed to be written, and needed to be received because what was happening was causing great confusion amongst believers. Strange doctrine was creeping in. A lot of half-truths, a lot of of messiness from many different directions. So we're going to be looking at 1 John. Now, 1 John, guess who wrote 1 John? It's a trick question. No, it's not. John, even though he doesn't identify himself like so many times we see when they write these letters or these epistles, the author will oftentimes identify himself. He doesn't tell you his name in there, but as you look through it, there's very, very, very little doubt amongst theologians that the, the Apostle John wrote this letter. And a little bit different than a lot of the other letters, too, is we're not 100% certain on who he wrote this to. Most theologians, most students of the Word can best guess that it might have been to Ephesus. And if not specifically Ephesus, that whole group of churches up there in that part of the world at that time, which we would call Turkey, kind of where the seven churches of Revelation are all located. It was probably to those groups of people that he was writing this because the issues that he was going to be addressing 
weren't just located in one particular spot or one particular church. It was a philosophy that was being spread, and it was entering into the church, and it was causing, at, at the very least, confusion. We'll see that it was causing church splits. It says, and in, in I believe it's in chapter 2, that they went out from among us because of the, their doctrine was separating them. So there was doctrinal issues going on. There was ethical issues. It appears that there certain wasn't, certainly wasn't the love for our brothers and fellowship of the brethren that there should be. So right, what's taking place when he's writing this letter is actually something that's happening right there in present time. It's taking place. It needed to be addressed present time to solve or try to resolve the problem that was going on. There was this schism in the church. As I say, a church split. Doctrinal, ethically, doesn't matter. They were splitting. And we see in 2 John, if you look into 2 John, verses 10 and 11, there's only one chapter there, it, we, we see that there is also itinerant teachers running around. And these itinerant teachers are not speaking truth. And I, and I, and I want us to make the correlation because sometimes when we, we look at a, a book or a letter written in the Bible and it's dealing with issues, we sometimes think, oh, that's so old. That's so ancient. How can we make this apply to us or does it apply to us at all or is Mike just giving us a history lesson? Well, I hope there's a little history lesson, but the reality is these problems are the same today under different disguises, different names, different philosophies, and they're infiltrating the church, and it's causing lots of confusion in the lives of believers. You know, we're going to see as we go into this, and this is what motivated me, I believe, where the Lord led me to 1 John, is it's amazing to me how many, how many Christians, how many believers doubt their salvation. They wonder. Am I really saved? And a few weeks ago, I actually shared this message from 1 John chapter 5 where it says, I write these things that you may know that you're saved. And really, this whole book is written that you may know. It's interesting as you go through, the read the few chapters in this book, you'll see, I think it's about six different places, more if you count one little group where they, he, he kind of says, I wrote this to the man, the young man, the old man, etc. But at least six different places he says, this is why I wrote this message. This is why. And when you look at all of them, each one of them has to do with living in the surety of your salvation and the freedom that we truly have in Christ and what it means to live as a Christian and to live in the light. I was, I was uh, internally blessed this morning when the first thing I heard Pastor Bob say when he was starting the adult Sunday school class was something to the effect that he has taken us out of darkness and into that wonderful light. And that's, that's the point, really, of John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And that's where the title of my message is The Key to Fellowship. And we're going to find out the key to fellowship is walking in the light, that wonderful light that he has brought us into in Jesus Christ, the light that lives in us. So John opens his letter in kind of a strange way compared to a lot of the letters that we see in the Bible. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and I think as we look at the way he opens this letter, we'll begin to understand one of the things that he was trying to overcome. Verse 1, What was from the beginning that we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, 
what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. He's speaking about Jesus. And it's like he sticks verse 2 in between verses 1 and 3. 1 and 3 really are the continuation of the thought. But it's like he sticks in verse 2 to make the point more clear. He says, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and then was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write. Here's one of his reasons for writing. So that our joy may be made complete. I believe he starts out this in a kind of a unique way, a little bit strange actually, by saying what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld and looked at, what we have touched with our hands from the beginning. One of the things as you look into what was going on was he is having to say, wait a minute, there's a lot of voices speaking to you from a lot of different directions. You got a lot of teachers coming at you. You're listening to this on YouTube and you're listening to this on the internet and you're reading this article and you're doing that and the other thing and it's all coming to you. I'm the one that you need to believe because I was there. He's saying, I was there. I heard. I have heard with our own ears. And it's more than just hearing a noise. When you look at that word in the, in the Greek, it says it's something that we've heard, we've attended to it, we've considered it, and we've understood it. We have seen Next, he says, we have seen with our own eyes an eyewitness. And it's interesting, he says, we have seen. And then he goes on and says, and we beheld. There's a difference. Some of your translations say, we have seen and we looked at. Seeing is one thing. Really beholding it is another. He says, we beheld it. We beheld him. We, We looked at him attentively. We paid attention. We contemplated what he was doing. We saw that it's in the sense of visiting or meeting with someone. We beheld him. And then he says, and not only that, we touched him with our own hands. And when we begin to realize a little bit later here, I'll share some things about some of the weird teaching that was going on, that every one of those things is very significant. And what what John is saying is it's kind of like he's sharing his resume, so to speak. He's saying, you know, in other words, from the beginning. And that word beginning there. It could mean from the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Or it could be from John 1-1, his gospel, where he says, the, what was the word and the word was with God. But I don't think that would be accurate context completely. I think in the context, what he's saying here is, from the beginning, we have seen, we have heard, we have beheld. In other words, we were there from the beginning of his ministry. He's saying to them, basically, you know what? I ate with this man, Jesus. I worked with this man, Jesus. I traveled hundreds of miles on feet walking with this man, Jesus, and we camped every night with this man, Jesus. This this is my testimony. He says, you know what? I was there and I tasted the fish and the loaves when he multiplied them and fed thousands. I was there. He's saying, you know what? I was there when they rolled away the stone at Lazarus' grave. I smelled the decaying flesh. I was there. You can trust me because I was there. I'm a first-hand witness to all of this. I was there. I actually felt the water running down my feet when Jesus that night washed the disciples' feet. He washed mine too. I was there, and I ate the bread that he broke. 
and I drank of that cup that he passed around telling us it was the new covenant of his blood. I ate that bread and I, I, I drank that wine. I was there. You can trust me. I was involved with Jesus' life in the beginning. I was there. I watched him perform miracles that we'd never seen before. I was there when he healed the sick. I was there when he cured a leper. I was there when he raised some petty from the dead. I was there. My resume is growing as, a, as you're reminding yourselves of who I am and what I've witnessed, what I've seen, what I've touched, what I've beheld. I've seen his mercy. I've seen his love. I've seen his compassion firsthand. I witnessed it with the least of these. I, worship, I was there when he showed mercy to a prostitute who was caught in adultery. I was there. I was there when he healed blind men that were sitting in the dirt. I was there. I listened to his teachings. I stood beside his mother Mary at the cross and I heard his cries of agony. I was there and watched the blood running from his body. I was there when he died, took his last breath. This is my testimony. He's, he's just driving these thoughts home in their minds. This is, this is who I am. You can trust me. I was there. I can remember the feeling in my lungs gasping for oxygen as I was running to the tomb that morning when he was raised from the dead and the tomb was empty. I was there when he walked into the room with the door being opened. I was there and I touched his body after he was raised from the dead. I ate fish with him beside the sea after he was dead. He is just saying to these people, you know what, there's a lot of voices out there. Who can you trust? You can only trust the witness that is true and faithful. And he's telling him, you know what, you need to listen to the truth and I'm going to share the truth with you. It will take care of all of that other garbage that's out there, all those other messages that are coming, those things that are bringing confusion to who Jesus is to who He was, to what He's done for you, to what He's done in you. And, it, and it's the same today. We have so many mixed up messages out there. The world is trying to create all kinds of new ways to get to heaven. Even the ones that don't believe there's a God think there's a heaven or something out there. And we're hearing all these things. And, and this is what John is seeing happening in the church in regarding to the Word of life. And, and isn't it amazing? That's who's being attacked by these false teachers. Jesus who He is, what He's done. He says, I've been there from the beginning, in the end of verse 1, concerning the Word of life, concerning Jesus. And we see in verse 2, He makes clear He's eternal. This man, Jesus, is eternal. He was there with the Father. This one that we hadn't seen before, we have now seen. He has been manifested. He came to earth as the Son of God. He is just so sneakily laying the groundwork to undermine all this false teaching that's coming. And he's doing it all in his introduction. He says, He has been manifested to us. What was hidden has been made known. And I'm here to testify to the truth. You can trust me. And notice in verse 3, why? He says, so that we can have fellowship. That you can have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Man, when we are out of fellowship with, with the Father, out of fellowship with Jesus, our peace is out the window. Our hope, our confidence in Christ, it begins to diminish. Instead of walking by faith, we start walking in fear. We start questioning all kinds of things about God. 
But he says when, when we know the truth, we can be in fellowship with him, with the Father, with Jesus, and with each other. Notice in verse 4, he says, these are the things that I'm writing, and here's why. So that our joy, notice he doesn't say your joy. He says that our joy may be made full, may be complete. In other words, John is, did I say Paul before? Okay, John, usually my wife corrects me. John, John is saying, you know what? I am so disturbed by these false teachers. I want you to know the truth so that my joy can be restored. And I know your joy is being lost and it's taken from you by the enemy because you're getting all confused and you don't know what truth is anymore. So I'm telling you all these things to restore our joy. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, does the world need joy. Does his church today need joy? All this garbage that's out there that we get in our minds. And I tell you what, we get, you know, even how ridiculous, no matter how ridiculous it is, if we hear it enough times, we begin to kind of think about it. All of a sudden, we start giving it some kind of credence that maybe it's true. It can be a personal accusation, a thought from the enemy that somehow or other you're unworthy and you're unlovable and your sins really aren't forgiven. You probably aren't saved. Or it can be thoughts that would include the whole corporate thing, the Christianity, the body, the believers. Is this whole thing even real? Jesus, are you real? If you're really real, I hope you don't pray prayers like that anymore. You might have prayed one of those once. Jesus, if you're real. He's real. And this is what he's having to confront with the heresy that's being taught at this time. He says that we may have true fellowship in verse 3. Fellowship that goes beyond just sitting in the same room together. It's a, the word talks about an association, being in community, having communion with one another, really taking ownership in relationships. You know, the church, the body of believers, you know, we oftentimes and probably should feel closer to one another here as the body of believers. Sometimes we do to our natural families because we have something so great in common with one another. The Holy Spirit that lives within us. A salvation that's a gift from God. There's the love of Christ in us amongst the brethren. It's different. It should be different. One brother loving another brother. One sister loving another sister in Christ. It's something unique. It's something different than even loving a non-believer. We're to love them, but it's still different. I believe John is speaking. Well, first of all, he makes clear, so I don't just believe this. I believe it because the word makes clear that he's talking primarily here. He's talking to believers. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ as he's sharing all this information. And I believe as we go through the book, you'll see that one of the things he's talking to them about is their salvation. Are you really saved? And who Jesus really is. And when you start doubting who Jesus is, you start doubting your own salvation. There's no way you're going to be in, in, in intimate fellowship with God. No way you're going to be in intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. You're no way you're going to be in true fellowship even with one another when we're doubting all these things. Can't you just see why the enemy, same plan from 2,000 years ago, he's still using today? Because it still works if we're not watchful and careful. We've got to take a little sidebar from the Word here and look at some of the philosophy. And There were a number of philosophies. Gnosticism was not the only one. 
But this Gnosticism, this philosophy that was starting to spread throughout the church was one of the main issues. And the Gnosticism had a lot of weird philosophies, but I'm just going to touch on a couple that are critical. The word Gnosis or Gnosis means simply knowledge. It's a philosophy that was developed that focuses on attaining more knowledge. But it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's a spiritual knowledge that's not for everybody. Not everybody, not all of you are good enough to get the knowledge I have because you're not a super spiritual Christian like me. I have this extra special spiritual insight that you don't have. Therefore, because you don't have it, I'll share it with you. And even though it doesn't make sense to you, you've got to believe it because I'm super spiritual. I mean, think about that. Nobody stands in a pulpit and says that, but that's what we're hearing out there. We come at you with all these goofy teachings from all these different directions, and, you know, when you get a little more mature, a little smarter, a little more spiritual, you'll get it too. That's hogwash. You know, if it's true, the Word and the Holy Spirit will reveal it to us by the Word. You don't have to be super spiritual to know truth. We got the book full of it. Well, guess what? That's one of the things he's dealing with in the Gnosticism. This philosophy that there's somehow these super spiritual ones, this supremacy of knowledge, but not just intellectual knowledge, which was very good, but there's this super spiritual knowledge that not everybody gets. And then the second one thing that was really taught that was, that was very, very, very damaging is this separation between spirit and matter. And this could lead to all kinds of problems. When you separate spirit and matter, all matter by the Gnostics was considered evil. If you're made of matter, you're evil. You're all evil. Look at it, evil. Spirit is good. Well, if you connect the dots, therefore, if my spirit can't be evil, it's good. My body's evil no matter what. Let's go do evil. It doesn't matter because my spirit is not going to be tainted by the, the matter of my physical body, whatever. And so all of a sudden, sin loses any importance in the life of a true Gnostic because there's a difference between the two. Sin in the flesh became totally irrelevant, totally irrelevant under this Gnostic teaching. Now, when the Gnostics... And, and a lot of it came out of the Christians, but when Gnostics kind of tried to embrace Christianity, can you imagine strange philosophies trying to embrace parts of Christianity and then passing themselves off as Christian? Anybody ever heard of such a thing? It's happening all the time. Today, it's still happening. We got all this Eastern mystic meditative crap out there that has nothing to do with God, contrary to the Word of God. And they throw in a little God, Jesus, maybe higher power, and we're supposed to bite on it. And they even start selling the benefits as if the end justifies the means. We need to remind ourselves, church, in the end days, that the enemy is going to be doing all kinds of miracles, signs and wonders. doesn't mean he's God. It just means he's good at what he does. Deceiving, lying. So when they did become and involve Christianity, there was two groups primarily, and there was other breakoffs as there always is, but there was the Docetic Gnostics. 
these guys denied the humanity of Christ. Now, you might look at this and think, who would believe this stuff? But believe me, we're believing stuff goofier than this today. The Gnostic, the word docetic comes from a Greek word that simply means dokio, that means to seem like. What does that mean? Well, Jesus just seemed like he was a man. He was really kind of a phantom, kind of a ghost, kind of a, kind of a spirit. So when this Jesus, the phantom, was nailed to a cross, it really wasn't a man. It was just a phantom, a ghost. When he was dead and buried and put in the grave and raised from the dead, well, it really wasn't a man. It was just a ghost. You can see how this teaching undermines all of the foundations of the gospel when you start denying who Christ is. He only seemed to have a body. Then there was the Serenthian Gnostics, and they were a follower of a guy named Serenthius. And they were the other primary group. And they separated the man Jesus from the power of Christ. What does that mean? They separated the man Jesus from the divinity of Jesus. He wasn't all man and all God. They had to be separated. And what they taught was that Jesus was born as a man. And when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit and the power of God came on him. But before he was crucified, the dove flew away. So he wasn't really the Son of God, God in the flesh, nailed to a cross. He was just a man. Could have just as well been you or me because he was just a man. So when they looked at this, making him a man, denying that it was God in the flesh who came to earth in the form of a man and lived a sinless life and went to the cross, when they start denying this, they're denying that this is Jesus Christ, truly the Messiah, who came to bring redemption, who came to provide a way of salvation. And when you do this, you know what you're doing? You're eliminating Jesus as the only way to God. So what did the Gnostics do? They created their own way to God. What a novel thought that we can create our own ways to eternal life. This is exactly what they believed. They could do it through all kinds of spiritual inquiry and spiritual knowledge and get there. Jesus became, again, irrelevant. And and John is writing this. He says that our joy may be complete. Now you can begin to see why he's combating. He's preparing to take these crazy philosophies on, head on. But he says, you know what, you're hearing all these things and you might be believing some of these people and some of these itinerant pastors and teachers. You might be believing. But listen to this. I was there. I heard it all. I saw it all. I was there. I can tell you he's a man. I touched him. I watched him eat. I saw him get tired. I saw him have to rest. I saw him sweat blood of tears, or, uh, drops of blood in the garden. He was in such human anguish. I saw all this. He's, he was a man. But I saw him do miracles. I saw him turn water into wine. I saw him calm the storms. I saw him do things that only divine could do. And he's laying the foundation because it undermines what Christians believe or should believe. 
And after he has affirmed the reliability of his message, he starts out in verse 5 and says, and this is the message. So he's just laid the groundwork so far, and now he's finally getting to the message. And I'm going to read verses uh, 5 through 10. And this is the message. We have heard from him and announced to you. Notice, he's putting authority on there. I heard it from the master's mouth, and I'm going to share it with you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, if you read that, just take it all as it is and don't do any serious studying, meditating on it, you might get a little confused. But what he's saying is so critical and important for us to understand. In verse 5, this is the message. God is light and no darkness in him at all. Can you imagine that? I can't. No darkness, no sin whatsoever. Zero. Perfect purity. Perfect purity. And in him there is no darkness. He is light. Light here is a picture of truth, a picture of knowledge, a picture of righteousness. Dark is, darkness is just the opposite. It's a picture of falsehood. It's a picture of ignorance. It's a picture of sin. He's saying that in him is light, perfect truth, perfect knowledge, perfect holiness, perfect purity, perfect righteousness. And in verse 6, he says, true fellowship cannot occur while we're working in the darkness. He says, if you're walking in the darkness, you're, you're not. Now, one of the first things you need to understand is when we hear walking, in, can a believer with the light of Christ in us walk in darkness? Yes. Yes. Anytime we, we sin, that, that we're not pure, we're not perfect. But there is something that we're going to look at, and I, there's so many words, my mind gets going in so many different directions. It's like I'm a, there's a positional mic as a Christian, and then there's the practical mic. Positionally in Christ, I am holy, I am righteous, I am pure. I am walking in the light of Christ who lives and dwells in me. That's positionally who I am. In the eyes of God, he doesn't see me as somebody he has to judge a single sin in my life ever because they were all dealt with at the moment I got saved. Man, that's who I am in the Father's eyes. Awesome. And standing in front of the court, innocent. Jesus is my advocate. He's defending me, and he says, Look, Father, see the blood that I shed for him? He is innocent. He is innocent. Never again. Never again. This is startling to sometimes to me, to you. Never again do I have to repent of a sin in the sense of asking him to forgive me judicially that makes sense i don't have to repent to be forgiven so that i can get into heaven once i'm saved once i confess my sin and repented of it judiciously as judge he is saying it's all taken care of 
all taken care of. You don't need to sit and beat yourself up wondering what sin did I forget to repent of so I can get to heaven. That'd be crazy. No one would get there. We can't remember all our sins. We, we sin so often, you don't have a clue at half the time you sin. You know, commission sins, we get it sometimes. We know we did wrong. But the sins of omission, how many of you experience perfect love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Ooh, if you're not, you're sinning. We sin all the time, those sins of omission. So it can't possibly be talking about that. And when you look at the context of what's being talked about here in this whole section of Scripture, the primary context is fellowship through Jesus Christ. Fellowship through Jesus Christ. So when he's talking about us confessing our sin, what we're doing, what, what is, well, I better go to my notes so the screen makes some sense to you. <clears throat> Might be too late for that. At the end of verse 7, I just want to reiterate this, from all sin. All sin. Doesn't matter what you've done. It's dealt with. I say this with fear and trembling. Doesn't matter what you do. Judiciously, it's dealt with. Are you getting that? I mean, this is shaky ground sometimes. Judiciously. Judicial. You know, when we are guilty, Bob is hitting on all this in adult Sunday school. If you haven't been coming, it's, it's, you should be. Judiciously, when we sin, there is a penalty. If we stood before the judge, God the Father, and we had not accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, your sin would condemn you. You've got to die and spend eternity in hell. Case closed. But the moment I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the sin is taken care of from a judicial standpoint. I am innocent. Innocent, I'm not condemned anymore. Judiciously. However, as we look into the Scriptures here, in verse 8, I believe he's really attaching or attacking some of the false philosophy. He says, you know, if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. You know, to those who think your physical body can do anything, the Gnostics, you think you haven't sinned, you're a liar. You don't know what's going on. You're not telling the truth. But he says, if, you, if we all sin, which brings us to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there is about at least a half, different way, half a dozen different ways. If you start looking at all the different commentaries and, and things, even if you use the lexicons to study the Greek, I think you get a little bit closer. But they're trying to explain this away in so many different ways. So what I'm going to tell you here, I believe, is the clearest way in the context of fellowship, in the context of knowing judiciously and in Christ I am saved, my sins are forgiven, past, present, future. I believe what we're talking about here is fellowship. And when you look at this verse, and this verse has caused all kinds of consternation amongst people, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We're not talking judicial. Okay? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Positionally, I am cleansed. I am pure, righteous, and holy in Christ. But sin in my life hinders fellowship. You know, when we confess something, it simply means this. To say the same. To say the same as who? To say the same as God. To think about my sin the way God would describe my sin. So when I'm confessing something, it's like, Lord, I I did it again. 
I confess to you that I, I told a lie. I lied. But thank you. In Christ I'm forgiven. It's already done. It's already forgiven. But that confession is it's like wiping the slate clean again for fellowship. The word confess there, and again, I am not a Greek theologian, but I can read a lexicon. And I understand when it says that the word confess there is a present tense verb. How many of you care about that? <laughs> it's important. It means it's not a one-time thing. But our confession of sin judiciously is a one-time thing. So that's not what it's talking about here. We are to confess and then confess and continually confess every time we sin. And the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. We confess to get back into right relationship with Jesus, with the Father. To confess, continue to confess. A life of a Christian is truly one of confession or repentance. But never confuse this with repentance for the forgiveness of your sin that your salvation is hanging by a thread. Because if you live that way and you beat yourself up that way, really, seriously, nobody in this room would ever get to heaven. Ever. Because we, we, we can't live perfect holy, righteous lives practically in this body, in this earth that's still dying. But we confess our sins, present tense. And guess what? We, our sins aren't forgiven because we confess them. Don't ever think that. You know why our sins are ever forgiven? Because the blood of Jesus was shed on a cross. He died for our sins. When we look at this, this whole fellowship thing and the confessing it and being forgiven so our fellowship gets back together, again, there, that has nothing to do with mercy. It has everything to do with justice. The justice of God was met on the cross by Jesus. The only way I can be in fellowship with him isn't because God feels sorry for me. It's because Jesus died on the cross and made me a son, a joint heir with Jesus Christ himself. And he desires fellowship with me. You know, really, those things in our life that we don't confess, <clears throat> they're bothering us way more than they bother anybody else. They're preventing us from that intimacy with the Lord. And when he, when John is dealing with all this garbage that's taking place in the early church, this is what he's saying. All this confusion about who Jesus is, all this confusion is leading you to question, am I saved or aren't I saved? This idea that, no, you don't sin at all, forget that. But you do sin all the time, but you don't have to worry about it. No, forget that. He's trying to clarify this and saying, you know what? When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you, commit, you, know, you, you confess those sins, you repent, the sins are washed away, it's done forever, one time for all time. But he wants to be in intimacy with us, and he knows when we start walking in the, in the darkness over here a little bit, we're, we're walking away from the light. He wants close intimacy. And he says, just confess and keep on confessing. You don't need, that's all it takes. I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want intimacy with you. And when our intimacy with the Lord wanes, guess what? Our relationships with everybody else wanes. Because we can't truly love like Christ loved when we're walking in the darkness. So what do we do if we all sin? We can all walk around that day wondering if, gee, how's my fellowship? You know what? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. I could, I could sit down on a piece of paper and probably write a long list of sins in the last 24 hours and do it every 24 hours. But you know what? I'd forget some. 
I don't have to worry about that. I have the Holy Spirit living in me that will show them to me. And when he shows them to me, I confess them. That's not a very complicated process. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He will reveal these things to us. I throw aside 12. You got it up there already. Good. You know, some people will say, I don't see those two terms in the Bible. You're right, you won't. You won't see judicial forgiveness in the Bible, and you won't see parental or familial repentance in the Bible. They're words that are being used to explain what something is. Because it's a little confusing when I read, you know, just forgive your sins. Where does that, what type of forgiveness is that? The kind that helps me improve my relationship or the kind that I need to have forgiven so I can get saved? The judicial sins versus parental. Think of that. This is God. How are we with our family members, our children? Why do we go to them and confess our wrongs? Because we love them. Because we respect them. And because we want to have right relationship with them. God's our Heavenly Father. If I'm doing something in error, whether it's a sin of commission or omission, I want the Holy Spirit to show me that so I can confess it so that we can get back into right relationship. I'm still his son, but I want intimacy in that relationship. Does that make sense? You're not confused? If you are, I have to live in fear. In verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, make him a liar. We all sin. Go ahead and take a deep sigh of relief. You're not the only one that sins. Isn't that good? To realize you don't have to walk around living in fear and condemnation all the time. Everybody in the room with you, no matter how nice they look today, is sinning sometime today. Well, let's not feel too good about it. <laughs> but there should be that kind of freedom as a child of God. We're to walk in freedom and liberty that Jesus died for, and so much of the church is walking up bound, and, and we look like the world, and the world needs what you have. They need the joy. They need Jesus in their heart. They need to understand salvation. They need to have peace. They need to be able to have relationship. And you and I should be able to present a way for all of that through Christ. And I'm going to close with just reading two awesome verses because really chapter 1 shouldn't have ended there. I'm going to change the Bible. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I can get in trouble, especially with visitors. My little children, notice the compassion. I mean, he's concerned about all the air that they're getting into, but he, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And anyone does sin, he knows we're going to. Guess what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What's another good word for advocate? We have an attorney. We stand before God. We've got an attorney. It happens to be his son who paid the price already. I like my odds the righteous Jesus Christ. And he himself is the propitiation. He himself is the one who took our place. He himself is the satisfaction, if you would, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I hesitate to stop there because all of the sins of the whole world have been dealt with 
but it needs to be received through Jesus Christ. Not everybody's sins are forgiven until they receive Jesus Christ, but the price has been paid for all of them. We have an advocate. So what do I think John is really trying to drive home in this first chapter, first two verses of chapter 2? One, that Jesus was a real person. He really was man. He really was God. And through Jesus, we have fellowship with God, with God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and we have fellowship with one another. Awesome. And we're to walk in the light of our salvation and the truth of God's Word. We're not to use forgiveness and really, if we have a relationship with God and we love God, who wants, to, who wants to sin more anyway? And then when we fail, because we will, we have the Holy Spirit who will reveal to us and we just need to confess it. Simply agree, God, I agree. You're, I, what I'm doing is wrong. What I said is wrong. What I didn't do was the wrong thing not to do. And as soon as we do that, our fellowship is restored. We should be able to walk in that kind of freedom every day. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that if there is any confusion, you resolve it by your Spirit. I thank you for your word, that it's true, and you're faithful to it. I pray you give us all greater understanding as we dig into it, that we would understand it rightly by your Spirit. I pray that as we go our different directions today, we go led by your Spirit, that we're aware of what you're doing around us. God, it's so awesome that we can see you in everything that you've created. Lord, I praise you and thank you for what you're doing in our lives, each person here in the lives of our young people. And Lord, in all these things, we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.